Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This Club Book podcast features Julie Rivette at Stillwater Public Library. Rivette is a scholar and granddaughter of Dashiell Hammett, author of the 1929 detective classic The Maltese Falcon. Hammett is considered the father of the hard-boiled style of detective writing, and The Maltese Falcon is undoubtedly his opus. Julie Rivette has edited five books on her celebrated grandfather's work, including Selected Letters of Dashiell Hammett in 2001, Dashiell Hammett, A Daughter Remembers, also in 2001, Return of the Thin Man in 2012, The Hunter and Other Stories in 2013, and The Continental Op, Case Files Complete in 2016. Rivette is also a trustee of the Hammett Estate and delivers lectures around the world on Hammett and autobiographical falcon protagonist Sam Spade. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm pleased to be here. Pleased to be in Stillwater in the St. Croix Valley. I'm very happy that you uh, brought me here, that I had this opportunity to share this particular book with you. Um, it's, this is, The Maltese Falcon is, my favorite of my grandfather's five novels. And it's not just because, you know, it's finely crafted, deeply insightful, and a lot of fun to read. It is. But the reason I really love this book is because there's so much of Samuel's DeShiel Hammett in Samuel Spade. Um, they're very much alike. Consider this, consider the similarities, physical description. Now my grandfather doesn't have that great bear-like physique that Spade has, although I'm sure he would have liked to. But if you look at the description in the first page of the Falcon, that uh, blonde Satan, that's very much a portrait of my grandfather about the time that he was writing the Maltese Falcon. And you can look at the vocation. Um, they're both PIs, right? Both working detectives, um, sharing the same world, you know, real world experiences, um, stories and characters that my grandfather uh, came into contact with when he was working for Pinkerton's became part of his retinue, um, founded the basis for many of the characters and situations in his books. And look at the, the, the location. These both, both these men live in San Francisco. They walk the same streets. They eat in the same restaurants. They even live in the same apartment. Ask me about that later if you're interested. Um, and very importantly, they both share the same philosophical kind of worldview. They're pragmatic, self-contained, tough-minded, tough, smart. These are very hard, cold, clear men. 
My grandfather once wrote that Sam Spade was an idealized detective, that he was the dream man in the sense that he was what most of the private detectives I've worked with would like to have been, and what quite a few of them in their cockier moments thought they approached. Now, I wouldn't call my grandfather cocky or a dream man exactly, but he and Sam Spade definitely shared a lot of the same hard-boiled attitudes. Attitude was really the key. That's the two, the two men lived according to their own values and rules, their own, not the world's. Remember what Sam Spade said, at one time or another, I've had to tell everybody from the Supreme Court on down to go to hell and I've got away with it. That's a big claim for a man who's working out of a two-man office and living in a one-room apartment. Moreover, it's, pretty, it's a little eerie when you think about the things that happened to my grandfather later in his life. Go to hell, according to my mother, was one of my grandfather's favorite expressions. And that go to hell attitude has a lot to do with what, how my grandfather confronts the McCarthy era and the trouble that came with it. So tonight what I want to do um, is explore the Hammett narrative with a kind of interdisciplinary approach um, that has a lot to do with that McCarthy era and a lot to do with uh, political scenarios in general. Um, it's a kind of a meld of literature and history and political science filtered through a particular historical lens. The emphasis in this narrative tonight is on intellectual freedom, the right to think and write and read in ways that do not necessarily conform to society's standards. That's important for both writers and readers, and it's important to everybody who cares about freedom. My grandfather's story is an example. It's a demonstration of the potential for things to go very wrong when individual rights are impinged. So let me start that story with a brief bit of biography, a kind of reader's digest of the 50, first 50 years of my grandfather, the, the man I've come to know largely posthumously. He was a poor boy, the oldest of three kids, born and raised mostly in Maryland, uh, Baltimore, a little <coughs> bit in Philadelphia, mostly in the Baltimore area. He was a smart kid. Um, actually, later in life, when he applied for, uh, when he went into the Army for World War I, they tested his IQ, as they do for soldiers going in second highest IQ in the state of Maryland. Which is pretty amazing considering he dropped out of high school after one semester. So let's not say that he was uneducated. The trick is that he was self-educated. He was a voracious reader, highly dependent on libraries, um, and a guy who had a, a wonderful memory. We know he was very interested in philosophy. We know that he was reading Kant at the age of 14. He was trying to keep in touch with um, the ideas of the times. He, he, he maintained an interest in philosophy throughout his life. At one point, he even wrote a philosophical essay of his own. He was interested in ideas and interested in how to make sense of the world. He was also a working detective. He had hands-on experience for about five years, um, maybe not quite five years, both before and after World War I, working for Pinkerton's National Detective Agency, first on the East Coast, and then up in the Pacific Northwest, and finally in San Francisco. He learned how to observe. He learned how to report. He learned how to find truth, even when people didn't want the truth to be found. He witnessed how hard life could be, and he under, came to understand how hard people could be on each other. And he was a writer, chiefly, say, between 1923 and 1933. Ten years. Ten years. I mean, that changed everything. He was a painstaking craftsman, ambitious, really serious about his art. According to his way of thinking, every word had to have a purpose, had to mean something. His original work was Penny's a Word, literally Penny's a Word, 
pulp magazines, largely black mask magazine. He was writing uh, in large part to pay for food, to pay for rent, um, to help support his family, his wife, his two children. When he was too sick to do anything else, uh, tuberculosis had come back to him in San Francisco. Um, he was certainly too work, sick to work as a detective, too sick to walk San Francisco's hills in the fog. You can imagine that. Um, so he started working um, to pay the bills, but he was more ambitious than that. He really wanted his fiction to be more, to be literature. He worked his way from little short sketches. His first published work was 113 words, um, to gritty crime tales, largely featuring the Continental Op, to longer stories, and then to the novels. By 1930, when The Maltese Falcon was published, he earned a national reputation as an important, innovative writer, truly, truly a fresh American voice. And then he was a celebrity, especially in the first half of the 1930s. Um, celebrity moved him, you know, and money moved him from the working man's world of the West Coast to the glitz and glamour of the East Coast, New York, back to Hollywood, back to New York. In 1931, he fell in with Lillian Hellman at a party at Daryl Zanuck's house in Hollywood. They set up a 30-year relationship, she eventually becoming a, a notable playwright. He was hanging with the literati of the day at the Algonquin. Um, this was a, a big, glamorous world that he was in, full of money and people who love to talk about ideas. That's a really stark contrast to what's going on out in the streets. We're getting into the 1930s, right? This is the midst of the Great Depression. Um, it amplifies this contrast. So now he's faced with, uh, n with uh, earning $100,000 a year himself and people standing in bread lines on the street. It's a very hard thing for him to assimilate. Think about this, the contrast between Sam Spade, a working detective out there pounding the pavement, and Nick Charles, right, in a hotel room drinking martinis for breakfast. That's the difference between the two worlds my grandfather was trying to straddle trying to make sense of. So at that point, it's really not such a leap to, to understand why he became politically active. In the 1930s, he mid-30s, he found focus in that scene. He was a founding member of the Screenwriters Guild, working to secure representation for Hollywood writers. He was active with the Anti-Nazi League. And you know now it's hard to find fault with that, but in those days it was pretty controversial. Those people were eventually labeled premature anti-fascists, and it was not a compliment. Um, at this point, the Communist Party USA and the Popular Front were actively supporting uh, progressive causes for civil rights and social equality and against exploitation of workers. My grandfather probably joined the Communist Party in 1936 and he was active with them as an organizer, a fundraiser, a donor, a spokesperson. <coughs> These were the Depression years. So it was easy for him to take up the cause for the people. At one point he wrote a letter to my Aunt Mary and he said this, be in favor of what's good for the working man and against what isn't. And that was the basic rule for him. That was the, the impetus. And of course, like many, he was appalled by the rise of fascism and Nazi Germany and Hitler. And so, he took the next step, then he became a soldier, once again. My grandfather enlisted in the Army as a private for the second time in 1942 at the age of 48. Most of his service in the Army was spent on, in Alaska on Adak Island in the Signal Corps publishing the camp newspaper. He was in the business of information, educating the enlisted men. He wanted those men on that distant hard, hard rock island to understand the war they were fighting. 
and he, he had a good time with it. He enjoyed it. It was actually one of the best last times that he had in that place. Near the end of his time, as he could see the, the war starting to wind down, he actually considered running for public office as a communist. That was still possible in those days. There were many elected public officials who were communists across the country. So and to sum this up, we can see he was a patriot, disloyal. I mean, dissenting, but not disloyal. When he was discharged in the fall of 1945, he went to a farm in Pleasanton, New York, that he and Hellman shared. At that point, he had to find some direction, something to do with himself, his energies, his talents. He tried writing, but he didn't get very far with it. He did a little play doctoring, but his heart really wasn't in it. He did do some teaching um, at the Jefferson School of Social Science, where he also served on the board of directors. The, the Jeff School, as they called it, was a Marxist college in lower Manhattan. Its mission was to educate in the spirit of democracy, peace, and socialism, teaching Marxism as a, the philosophy and social science of the working class. He enjoyed the teaching, absolutely, and he was making no secret of his left leanings. It's during this period after World War II that he became very serious about his political positions and very visibly, publicly involved in the causes he believed in. In June of 1946, he was elected president of the Civil Rights Congress of New York, founded, as the name says, to defend people whose civil rights had been violated. My grandfather said in one of his letters, the organization uh, worked on behalf of Jews, Negroes, trade unionists, communists, pseudo-communists, suspected communists, imaginary communists, and God knows who all the so-and-sos of the other sort want to jump on. Yeah, he threw himself into the work. At this point, money wasn't much of an issue. He did not need to write to pay the bills, so he had the freedom, you know, that luxury to devote himself elsewhere. His books were in, still in print, and the radio shows, the radio shows were playing very well. The Thin Man shows had started, had been on the air since 1941. The Fat Man radio serial uh, started on ABC in January of 46. CBS began broadcasting The Adventures of Sam Spade in July of the same year, just a month after my grandfather had been elected president of the CRC. Between those three shows, he was pulling in a steady $1,200 a week. $1,200 a week, that's something like 15000 a week in today's dollars, with doing nothing. The only work involved was cashing the checks at this point. So he was hugely popular. He was, had earned a place at this point, not only in American literature, but in American popular culture. Big deal. He'd also earned a spot on the FBI's watch list. Yes, he was a high-profile Marxist who had long made no secret of his political affiliations. In his position with the CRC, he signed petitions, he wrote letters, he gave speeches, he raised funds for communist and other liberal, liberal uh, progressive causes. In consequence, during the late 1940s, my grandfather's FBI file grew exponentially. By 1950, the report ran uh, something like 20 pages of single-spaced text outlining his subversive political activities. Now, in hindsight, we can see it's a pretty schlocky job, and a lot of the uh, information comes from those you know, unnamed confidential sources. So here's a sampling. He was uh, listed for calling on the mayor of New York to stop police brutalities toward Negroes. 
supporting efforts to oust Senator uh, Bilbo from Mississippi, who was a corrupt, foul-mouthed white racist who was trying to strip uh, blacks of their right to vote. He was docked for signing a petition calling into question the tactics of the House Committee on Un-American Activities, commonly called HUAC. He was seen looking at a petition calling for the abolition of HUAC. Yes. He was uh, caught docked for advocating for the Communist Party candidates to be allowed on the ballot, for praising the New York State Education Department for not firing a teacher who happened to be a member of the party. Um, he was identified as the, by the American Legion, as many were, as unsuitable for sponsorship. He was uh, noted for sending a telegram to the Attorney General to ask him to stop persecuting non-citizens. And it gets worse. They said he directed taxicab drivers to drop in at in nearby intersections rather than at his own address. Very suspicious, of course. And of course, uh, they noted that he was living at least part-time with Lillian Hellman, who was also a very suspicious character in so many ways. Um, that's what was in the file, but that was only the beginning. By the end of the decade, things were looking pretty rough, personally and politically. My grandfather's health was bad. He was drinking again. He finally quit cold turkey in, in January of 49 after being told by his doctor that it was quit or die. There was no other choice. He'd also been dealing with my Aunt Mary who'd come to New York with the idea that mental health professionals there could help solve her lifelong emotional and mental health issues. They never did. Then we've got the public front. That was the private side. Here's the public side. The Cold War is ramping up. The threat of communism from Russia, China, and Korea, why does this sound so familiar, <laughs> is looming. Isolationists are growing increasingly paranoid. Yes, okay, check. Newspapers in turn are using their fears to sell newspapers. Check. Spies, real and imagined, are discovered within the halls of government. Yes. Uh, domestic policies respond in kind. In 1947, President Truman initiated a loyalty oath for all federal employees. In 1948, Joseph McCarthy was elected the junior senator from Wisconsin, nearby, and HUAC, led by Richard Nixon, was hard at work pursuing commies and suspected commies. Blacklists at that point were circulating, um, depriving many of their livelihoods without rationale or recourse. By 1949, out on the West Coast, the Hollywood Ten were in the last stages of their losing battle. They'd soon go to jail between six months and a year each on contempt charges. They had refused to testify about their own memberships in the Communist Party, claiming First Amendment rights to speak or not speak as they wished. It didn't work. And then the Justice Department was ramping up persecution of party members under the auspices of the Smith Act. This is important. The Smith Act made it criminal for anyone to knowingly or willfully abet, advocate, abet, advise, or teach the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing the government of the U.S. by force or violence, or for anyone to organize, become a member of, or to affiliate with any association which teaches, advises, or encourages such an overthrow. It's a lot of words, I know, but I had to get it right. It was the Smith Act, by extension, that ultimately got my grandfather in trouble with the law. Now, my grandfather was president of the Civil Rights uh, Congress, remember? He was also chair of their bail fund um, that the CRC had created to help people who were arrested um, for political reasons. 
1949, the Civil Rights Congress Bail Fund posted $260,000 bail for 11 communist activists, uh, party, uh, 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 people high up in the party, who had been accused under the Smith Act. The 11 were released while the cases were under appeal, but then they were called back in 1951 when their appeals were exhausted, right? Time to go to jail. Four of the 11 were no-shows. $80,000 of the bail money was forfeited, but that wasn't the end of it. Within a week, my grandfather was called in to testify in federal court. Where are they, he was asked. And more importantly, who provided the money for the bail fund? Now, for my grandfather, there wasn't really any question about how he could respond. He wasn't the kind of guy to rat out his fellows, or as this may be, the, his fellow travelers. In any case, it's unlikely he knew where the four fugitives had gone. It's possible he had some knowledge of the bail fund contributors. It didn't really matter. He took the fifth across the board, acknowledging his name, but not much else. I declined to answer the question on the grounds that the answer might tend to incriminate me. I am exercising my rights under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. Again and again, dogged, patient, stubborn. He couldn't have given them anything else and lived with his own conscience. But there's a moment of humor in the hearing um, that, I, that tickles me, though it might not have seemed funny at the time. As evidence, the prosecution had brought in the minute books from the CRC Bail Fund Committee, pointing specifically to the day that the bail for the 11 had been approved. There were four sets of initials in the margins, presumably one for each of the trustees for the fund. Now, my grandfather at that point was being questioned by U.S. District Attorney Irving Sapol. He was at that point considered the nation's number one legal hunter of top communists. and He was the same guy who would brought the case against the Rosenbergs just four months earlier. Sapol asked my grandfather if he recognized those initials. My grandfather started to decline to answer, as he had been, citing his Fifth Amendment rights. And then he stopped and he backed up and he volunteered a reply. He said, yes, he recognized the initials. They were initials. He didn't admit they were his, of course, but they were definitely initials. You know, letters in the alphabet, right? It seems to me like just exactly the kind of thing that Sam Spade would have said. My grandfather beat them at their own game, defeated the question by giving them its proper answer. At the end of the session, no one was amused. Uh, my grandfather didn't give the answers the court was looking for. He was cited for contempt of court. His Fifth Amendment rights notwithstanding, he was sentenced to six months in prison or until he purged himself of contempt. Fat chance, that, right? When the judge asked him if he had any comment, he replied, not a thing. Immediately, he was sent to the West Street Federal House of Detention in New York. Three days later, on July 9, 1951, Judge Learned Hand of the Second District Court of Appeals set his bail at $10,000 pending appeals. At the same time, the court ruled that the Civil Rights Congress funds could not be applied to his bail. He was cut off from his own fund. And then this. This is the part that really gets me. My grandfather had a secretary at that time named Muriel Alexander. She was as loyal to him as anyone could be. She came to the courthouse there in New York, I'm sorry, to the jail there in New York, with $10,000 in cash in her hand. That's maybe $95,000 today to post bail in her hand, ready to go. The federal marshals refused to accept it. You see, she wouldn't tell them who provided the money. And they wouldn't release my grandfather unless she did. 
So he stayed in jail and she kept her silence. Nearly 50 years later, when I met Muriel, she still would not tell. The climate of the times had taught her silence, don't talk. If you ever get a chance to watch the American Masters documentary on my grandfather, you can see her there, a big mane of white hair, still livid, remembering how things went down. Any sleazeball racketeer could get out, she said, but not him. To me, to this day, that's one of the most galling aspects of this whole narrative. At the end of the September, my grandfather was transferred to the Federal Correctional Institute near Ashland, Kentucky. He served that balance of his sentence there, 22 weeks altogether, four weeks off for good behavior. His correspondence was restricted, but he was able to write to my mother and to receive letters from her. There were no complaints. He did what he had to do. In his letters, he talked of his perfectly ordinary chores, the food, the weather, his readings, his fellow prisoners, whom he got a kick out of, um, his slight hopes of legal, legal redress. There's a melancholy tinge that, he, that you can read in those letters, but there's no self-pity and no recriminations. Uh, he was released on December 9th, 1951. He made his way back to New York to the apartment on 10th Street that had been kept waiting for his return. It wasn't long, though, that before he had to give it up. He couldn't make the rent. He was sick, unable to work, unable to find work, even if he'd been well enough. The celebrated writer, who'd been earning more than $100,000 a year during the Great Depression, had virtually no income. The blacklist. The blacklist was in full force. Those three radio shows that had provided his most steady income were canceled. What network or corporate sponsor could afford to be associated with a convicted communist? His books went out of print. Who would dare publish or purchase books by a commie author, even if those works had nothing to do with political ideology? And in perhaps the most pernicious of the attacks, the IRS went after his earnings, past and present. Now, we know that my grandfather had had tax troubles for a long time, but he had made efforts to deal with them. The IRS was obviously not satisfied. An audit in 1951 showed he owed just over $100,000, 1951 dollars, mind you, mostly money due from the three years he'd spent in Alaska in the Army. The Treasury Department had issued an income tax lien, not coincidentally, I think, on the same day that his bail was set. Uh, by 1954, the accumulated bill came to 111. By 1956, when it went to court, we're looking at 140,000. At that point, even if he'd been motivated to write or perhaps to finish any of the many, many pieces that he started, it, there was hardly any point in publishing. The government would have confiscated all his, earring, his earnings. So he gave up his apartment in New York City and he moved to Katona in upstate New York into a four-room cottage on the grounds of an estate of some friends. They would have let him stay for free, but he insisted on paying $50 a month. That was $50 a month out of his veteran's pension of $131.10 a month, which at that point was pretty much his whole income. He lived quietly, um, his health never good, his high times behind him. The powers that be weren't ready to leave him alone though. Um, in March 1953, Hammett was called to testify before the Senate Committee on Government Operations. The issue was whether or not uh, government libraries, government funds should be used to purchase books by known communists for State Department libraries. The committee chairman was our friend uh, Roy, Joe McCarthy. Roy Cohn was special counsel. 
The two of them grilled my grandfather on his writings, membership in the party, royalties, his work with the Civil Rights Congress, his opinions on communism. My grandfather took the fifth, but not quite so consistently as before. Would you think that American communism would be a good system to adopt in this country, he was asked. He declined to answer in part because of the threat of incrimination, and also in part, he said the answer wasn't a simple yes or no. You could not answer yes or no whether you think communism is superior to our form of government, asked McCarthy. You see, I don't understand, said my grandfather. Theoretical communism is no form of government. You know, there is no government. And I actually don't know, and I couldn't without, even in the end, I doubt I could give a definite answer. Would you favor adoption of the adoption of communism in this country? No, came the answer. For one thing, it would seem to me impractical if most people didn't want it. And so it went on like that, sparring uselessly. At the end um, is my favorite part, and it's the part that has to do with books and access to books and the free exchange of, idea, of ideas. Okay, here's the chairman, Joe McCarthy. May I ask one further question, Mr. Hammett? If you were spending, as we are, over $100 million a year on an information program allegedly for the purpose of fighting communism, and if you were in charge of that program to fight communism, would you purchase the books of some 75 communist authors and distribute those works throughout the world, placing our official stamp of approval on those works? Or would you rather not answer that question? The reply? Well, I think, of course, I don't know. If I were fighting communism, I don't think I would give people any books at all. <laughs> yes. McCarthy finally sounding stumped from an author. That sounds unusual. Thank you very much. You're excused. And with that, the hearing was closed. Um, my grandfather, for a short while, those books were pulled off the shelves until President Eisenhower came in and put an end to the nonsense. There was no subversive threat in the Maltese Falcon of the Thin Man. My grandfather, uh, my grandfather lived another eight years following that exchange, but about that time he gave up all hopes of writing and he just lived quietly in his little cottage. When the time came that he was too sick to live alone, he reluctantly moved into uh, the apartment of Lillian Hellman in New York City. He died in January 1961 from lung cancer, complicated by a host of other ailments. He was buried in Arlington National Cemetery according to his own wishes. There were some at the FBI who objected, but by 1961, the force of the McCarthy area had dissipated and his, the, no one paid too much attention. His grave remained undisturbed. He is still there today. Um, now, I wish I could say that was the end of the story, or at least this part of my grandfather's story, but it's not true. To borrow a quote from William Faulkner, the past is not dead. In fact, it's not even past, which seems just also appropriate. The aftermath, okay, so we got a, the aftermath, death wasn't much of a deterrent for the IRS or for Hellman. Between the two of them, the Hammett Literary Estate has gone through some pretty hard times. And it all goes back to the McCarthy era, to the blacklist, to the paranoia, to that loss of personal freedom. Between, so, so here's what happened. Between the feds and New York State, the past due bill came to $180,000. Hellman claimed another 40 in personal loans, Plus there were medical, funeral, and administrative expenses. All of this against assets of something less than $10,000, mostly in uh, royalties held by Knopf. My grandfather's will was a simple two-page will. Um, it, divided the Il it named Lillian Hillman as executrix. The estate was divided into four parts, 
two parts were to go to my mother, one part to her, her older sister, and one part to Hellman. It seemed like a joke at the time, though, because there was nothing to divvy up. There, was, there were no profits. There were no assets. The meager, uh, what there was would be gobbled up by debts, and the copyrights in the wake of the blacklist seemed pretty much worthless. At least that's what Hellman claimed. As executrix, she cobbled together a plan to settle the debt by trading those few assets against the outstanding bills for a clean slate, just wipe it all out. The IRS declined. Instead, the court ordered that Hellman conduct a public sale of the Hammett copyrights with a minimum bid of $5,000. $5,000 to the rights for everything he's ever written. $5,000. Hellman immediately made plans to purchase the Hammett estate. She wrote, to her credit, she wrote to my mother and to my aunt and asked if they would like to contribute to become partners in this purchase. My mother wrote back promptly, said yes, of course. It would take them a few weeks, a month or six weeks, to put together the money, but was that all right? Please keep us informed. But by then, Hellman had changed her plans. Later, she wrote to my mother, it was so strange and chilling that I didn't hear from you. And with that, she proceeded on her own course. In November of 1963, she and a friend, Arthur Cohen, bought the copyrights for the minimum bid of $5,000. They were the only bidders. The family lost all legal claim to the Hammett works. When Cohen died a year later in a car accident, his rights went to Hellman. She now controlled everything. To her credit, I will say, this is uh, maybe we're talking like 1964 here. To her credit, Hellman did revive much of the Hammett literary reputation. She arranged for republication of the novels by Knopf. She arranged for the big knockover and continental op story collections. Um, including Tulip, which was perhaps his last piece, unfinished. Um, she authorized that uh, uh, Jason Robards, Dane Kirsch, you may have seen on television in a three-part series. So to her credit, Hellman did bring Hammett back into the marketplace, and the marketplace was glad to have him. On the other hand, there were some contracts signed, some deals made that served her purpose in the moment, but years later have created some significant problems for the estate. And through all of this, the money that came to her, for the most part, stayed with her. My mother would get a check at the holidays, right, with notes attached, calling the money a gift from her father, or saying that she, Hellman, that is, shouldn't be doing this, or warning about tax issues. That's the way things were all the time that I was growing up. And Hellman's death in 1984 still didn't end this saga. It just turned a new page. Hellman wrote a will turning over control of the Hammett assets um, to a literary property trust managed by three of her friends. Proceeds from that trust were supposed to go to my mother or the family, but only after some 40% of the gross receipts went to the three trustees, followed by agents fees, legal fees, secretarial, bookkeeping fees, and miscellaneous expenses. Most years, nothing at all trickled down to my mother and her sister, and for me, this is the shadow of the McCarthy era, and it's a long, long shadow. My grandfather died, remember, 1961? Hellman died in 84. It took until 1995 until the family regained even a portion of the estate, and then only through a negotiated settlement based on copyright extension law. Too complicated to go into here. The five novels, though, came back to my mother, both control and income, but only the five novels. When Richard Lehman and I published my grandfather's letters in 2001, we actually had to go to Lillian Hellman's trustees to get permission. That was pretty galling. 
but we did it, and they gave it. Um, since then, we have recaptured the rights to the whole Hammett Library, um, other than things that are tied up specifically by contract, but the job took until 2003. Yes. Um, after the death of William Abrams, um, one of Hellman's trustees, and with the aid of encouragement of attorneys, uh, Hellman's two remaining trustees agreed to resign and allow replacements to be designated by the family. My brother, who's an attorney, Richard Lehman, Hammett biographer and family friend, and I are the now the three trustees. We are trustees under the will of Lillian Hellman. <laughs> Let that sink in. Uh, yes, but at least now for the benefit of my mother and for the benefit of the Hammett estate legacy. It's amazing. I mean, it was half a century from the time my grandfather sat before McCarthy talking about books and commies. It was half a century before the rights to his books were back where they should have been from the beginning with the family. Half a century. Even now, there are things we can't do, deals we can't make, because certain rights have been constrained by Hellman's actions. And Hellman's actions were enabled by the IRS, and the IRS was the foot soldier of the Fed's McCarthy-era madness. That's just crazy. This is my grandfather's story. This is his real-life story. It's my family's story. It's my story. And it is absolutely, positively not the only story of its kind. Thousands of lives were impacted by the blacklists, McCarthy, and the closing of mines and doors that infected the McCarthy era. When I think back to Samuel, Samuel Spade and Samuel DeShiel Hammett and that go-to-hell attitude that they both liked so much, I can't help but wonder what they would have said here today. Probably less than this. Sam Spade played his cards too close to the vest to tell you this much of the story. And my grandfather, he wouldn't have vented in the way that I've taken the opportunity to vent. He was not a man to complain even in the worst of circumstances. But he was an educator. And he was a man who didn't hesitate to speak out when he saw wrongs that needed righting. So I hope tonight that I'm following in those steps, in those footsteps. I hope that this story will serve as a reminder of the dangers of intellectual constraints. Free thought, free speech, free writing, and free reading are essential to a, a successful democratic society. If there's one message that you take home with you tonight, I hope that's it. Democratic freedom cannot exist without intellectual freedom. Remember that. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Julie Rivette and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Hammett's work with the Pinkerton Detective Agency as a young man influenced him later on. So a lot of this is speculation. I mean, we know he was working up in those areas, up in uh, Butte, Anaconda um, uh, area where the copy mines were. Um, we, of course, have no Pinkerton's records. Pinkerton's, you know, their records were lost or burned or something because they certainly don't want people to know what they were doing back in those days, which was very likely a lot of strike breaking. Um, my grandfather sometimes uh, exaggerated those stories because it made, it was a good, for the back page of the, of the back cover of the book, right, if he had a good story. So I, I, 
I, I think it probably did influence him, but I think it's just one part of a larger package, and I don't like to pin it down that way because it's because it is speculation. But he, you know, he, he was a kid who grew up poor. His dad, you know, was failed at everything. They had to move in with the grandparents. You know, he worked as a stevedore and an office boy. You know, delivery boy. He had all kinds of just low-level jobs. Whatever a good-looking, well-spoken, fourteen-year-old boy could get, a timekeeper. Um, so he was really exposed to the working-class side of life. So I think that combined with the exposure to the labor business. Um, at that point, um, and then and then then that flip when he becomes wealthy, and you see this massive difference between one side of the street and the other, was just killer, and it, it, it just he couldn't live with it. So, but yeah, it's it's all you know, kind of a gray pot of stew there, and it's 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 guesswork. This question is whether Red Harvest will ever be adapted into a film. We have more interest in film rights to Red Harvest than any other work in the Hammett Library, and we cannot do it. Because the rights that were sold originally with the book were resold and resold, and uh, the people who claim to own them now, there is a film that they supposedly made that is in a vault in Spain that only four people have seen, and because that film exists, we cannot remake the movie. And the only way we could do it would be to do it collaboratively, which we would be happy to do because otherwise the copyright's going to die. Um, anyways, there is a there is an A-list writer right now who is interested in pursuing those rights, and so something could happen with that. But it's really frustrating. Those old contracts, um, you know, are really tough you know, and and expensive to research. And you don't want to get to the end of the story and have somebody go, "Oh no, I have a contract. You haven't seen this one. It's in a drawer." And they bring it out, and it's like, well, all the tens of thousands of dollars you've already put into this project are useless. So, so it's, yeah, Hollywood's a weird, weird place. This question asker inquires why Hammett never wrote a sequel to The Maltese Falcon. He did at one point consider doing a, a sequel to The Maltese Falcon. Um, I think, and then he moved on. He wrote The Glass Key immediately afterwards. He was, go he actually did write, sort of, a sequel to the movie. Um, he, the movie was made by Warner Brothers. Daryl Zanuck was the production head. And uh, Daryl Zanuck loved the movie. My grandfather hated the movie. I don't know if, if anybody's seen it. Um, it's an interesting movie. It's pre-Hays Code, so it's a little sexier. But the detective is just kind of a sleazeball. Um, Ricardo Cortez is, is everything that lazy readers think Sam Spade is. He's rapacious. He's crooked. Um, all these things. He's not Sam Spade, but Daryl Zanuck loved it, and so my grandfather wrote a story, and uh, and he said here, and he wrote it like that one, like that detective, that sleazy detective. And then when it got to the end, they paid him five thousand dollars for this draft, another five for that draft, and then they got to the end and they said, wait a minute, this isn't anything like Sam Spade. And he's like, this is what you asked for, and so he took the rights back to it. Um, he. So he, he retained the rights. He went to uh, Universal a couple of years later. In 1935, they actually did produce a movie from it. It's called Mr. Dynamite. Um, you've probably never seen it. I don't know if you can find it on YouTube. I've seen it once um, at a film noir festival. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of a B movie. You know, it's, it's not terrible. It's 90 minutes. Um, if you're interested in reading, 
selfless, selfless promotion here, a shameless self-promotion here. Um, if you're interested in reading the screen story for that, it is in this book. Um, it's kind of a long story, um, but it's a, it's a crooked, sleazy detective. So he did that. There's also, um, he did write three short stories featuring Sam Spade after this. He was running through money faster than it was coming in. And one of his, um, his literary agents, Ben Wasson, suggested that he could, he could make some quick money by writing some Sam Spade short stories. So he published three of them in magazines in the 1930s. You know, and they're okay. Um, they're, you know, they're, he kind of borrowed stories from other things he'd other always written. There was one more um, called A Knife Will Cut for Anybody that he apparently decided not to continue. He actually, there's two versions of this same story. One of them has Sam Spade in San Francisco, and the other one has a detective called Fox who lives in New York, who actually lives in the same townhouse where my grandfather was living in New York at that time. So he's reading, writing these two, and it's about a, he goes in and finds a beautiful woman packed up on the floor, and then uh, there's an embassy involved and foreigners. And uh, so he wrote, here's what we think happened. He started to write this book called The Darkened Face, and it was gonna be set in, it was gonna be a novella set in New York. And then he needs money, and he's writing these Sam Spade stories. So he says, well, I'll turn it into a Sam Spade story. So he does that, and he switches it over, and he writes, a little more simplified version of that story. And then what we think happened is he says, no, I'm not gonna waste it on this, I don't wanna do it, he throws it in the trash. Well, at that point he had a secretary with sticky fingers. So she fishes it out of the trash and keeps it. And it ends up on the antiquarian marketplace eventually. Um, ends up purchased by a A-list screenwriter. Um, and somehow we got word of this and I contacted the bookseller who contacted the the screenwriter, John Logan, who wrote The Aviator, and Hugo, who is a big Hammett fan. And so he provided us the copy for that story, which is also in this book. It's unfinished. But, um, so he was thinking about it, but well, Sam Spade is Sam Spade. Um, once, he, once my grandfather was done with the Continental Op, he never uses the same lead character. I mean, the next one is Sam Spade, the next one is Ned Beaumont, the next one is um, Nick Charles. Um, and then he's trying to write political, some political stuff. He's got a couple of, we call the Felix stories um, that are unfinished. So he was just ready to move on. And I don't think he wanted to be stuck. He was very frustrated at being pigeonholed as a murder mystery, as a detective writer. And he really wanted to move beyond the genre stuff, but it's tough. Even writers today, I'm sure, would say the same thing. The next question is about the apartment in which Hammett lived when he wrote his first three novels and where he placed his character Sam Spade in The Maltese Falcon. At the time when I first got to see this apartment, it was being um, rented by an, a friend of ours who's an architect and he drew up the floor plan. Um, and you can see as you come down the hallway and then the one room, it's on the fourth floor at 401 Post Street. It is now a literary, um, uh, uh, Landmark. It's a landmark building. Um, it's no one lives well. No one lives there full time. Once in a while, somebody sleeps over. It's been restored beyond its original glory, and uh, is now maintained by a wealthy benefactor in San Francisco. So um, yeah, it's pretty cool, um, and it works. When you look at this floor plan, it's smaller than the movie scene, but the, it works. Like when they talk about she stood here, he stood there. This happens. It works. There is a Murphy bed, yeah. It, um, yeah, it does. It folds down so that the closet is behind it and the corner of the table is right there. Absolutely. The only thing that's a little bit different is the kitchen. 
because uh, the kitchen in, in this apartment is smaller. There's no um, kitchenette, or I think that's what he says. So, but yeah, it's fascinating. They live in the same. Um, this um, information is available if you were ever interested. There's a book called Discovering Sam Spade and the Maltese Falcon that my collaborator Rick Lehman um, edited. And it's available for like 20 bucks, paperback, and it's got all kinds of original material on all of this stuff, and it has that floor plan in it. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot of fun. This question is about the pronunciation of Julie Rivette's grandfather's name. So um, sometimes people ask me about pronunciation. I know that when I was a teenager, I asked my mother because people on TV kept saying things like Dashel. And I said, you know, you kind of assume that the newscasters have it right. Well, they don't. So my mother's answer was, um, I pronounced the way my mother pronounced it. And she was married to him, so we kind of think we got the scoop. Um, so the name is originally French. Um, his family were uh, French Huguenots on his mother's side. So the name was D-E-C-H-I-E-L-L, -L, I think two L's. And so the C-H is pronounced like Chicago, right? And if you pronounce it with a French pronunciation, it's de Chille, right? So slight emphasis on the second. Um, he, um, he would correct people. So Dash is okay, but it's de Chille. He, uh, once joked that his friend Patricia Neal, the actress, was going to name her child after him and it was going to be DeShiel Neal. <laughs> and sometimes he went by Sam as a boy and when he was in the army in World War II he went by Sam sometimes or Pops. Um, so Dash is okay, but yeah, it's, not, it's just not Dashel, um, no matter what they say on television. Another audience member wonders if any of the characters in the Maltese Falcon were based off of people Hammett knew. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in 1936, there was a small edition, um, modern library edition of the Maltese Falcon, and my grandfather wrote an introduction there, and he talks about the origins for the characters. So, um, Sam Spade, as I said, was a kind of uh, idealized version. Bridget was based on two people, an artist and a woman who came to hire to Pinkerton's to hire an agent to fire her housekeeper. Um, we also have, um, in a, from a different source, believe that um, the physical characteristics of Bridget O'Shaughnessy are based on a woman named Peggy O'Toole, who was my grandfather's secretary for a while when he worked at Samuel's Jewelers. She was a lovely woman, and they had a little bit of a fling of some kind. Um, so she's very pretty. Effie was um, based on a woman who tried to get my grandfather to go into the drug trade with her in San Diego. Uh, Cairo was a forger from the Pacific Northwest. Gutman was a German accused of being a spy. My grandfather said it was the most boring shadow job he ever had. Um, the midget bandit was based on a guy, really was a midget, was a guy who uh, claimed to be a juvenile. He robbed a gas station, and then when the gas station owner blustered in the newspapers and said, well, if he comes back here, I'll really show him who's who. And so, of course, the kid came back and robbed him again and was arrested. Um, but yeah, they were all, yeah, many of these people um, throughout um, his stories, many of them, and sometimes they're amalgamations of different people, but yeah, very, very much so. Tons of really interesting characters in those days. This question is about the phrase, the stuff that dreams are made of, in the movie adaptation of The Maltese Falcon. The, the stuff that dreams are made of, which is at the end of the movie, you'll notice it is not in the end of the book. Um, it is actually Humphrey Bogart's contribution. 
Humphrey Bogart was a very smart guy and uh, literate and knowledgeable with his Shakespeare. It's a riff on a line from The Tempest. We are such stuff as dreams are made on and our little lives are rounded with sleep, I believe is how it goes. So uh, that's the ending to the movie. It's a little different. Um, uh, the, mov the movie ends differently than the novel does. In the novel, Sam Spade ends up pretty much exactly where he started, back in the office, Effie at the door. You know, it's, uh, it's very fatalistic, um, and it's, con it's considered by many to be the first existentialist American novel, and there's a good strong case to be made for that, um, which is one of the reasons this novel endures uh, and, and has uh, remained on the shelves for all these 80-plus years. This audience member wonders if Rivette has many memories of her grandfather. I only met my grandfather once um, when I was um, a little more than three, my parents must have learned that he was dying um, of lung cancer. He was at that point on Martha's Vineyard Island in, off the coast of Connecticut. And so my family, my mother was pregnant with her fourth child, and so the three of us kids, my mom, my dad, we flew from the west coast to the east coast and stayed back there for a week. Now, when I say flew, my dad was a pilot, and so we were like in a Cessna with four of us, five, yeah, four of us and, and the pregnant one. Um, yeah, so we hopscotched across the country, and so I remember being on Martha's Vineyard Island with him and him uh, teaching me to feed the big standard poodles that he and Hellman raised out of the palm of my hand and going up to the top of the mill room and making echoey noises. He, he, I have this sense, and this is because I've seen photographs of it also, that he's holding himself very carefully because he's very thin, very fragile, and, and probably in pain um, at that point. So, uh, yeah, it was the last visit for all of for all of us and um, yeah yeah so I have these little precious little snapshots of memories yeah. else? it is a very very strange thing and a, and a great privilege to have gotten to know my grandfather posthumously I've been working with the estate since about 1999 when my mother got a whole batch of letters that belonged to her mother and her sister and working with the letters book, I'm working with biographer Richard Lehman, and then um, we're actually up to six books now. Oh, the sixth book, I should mention that. Um, November 28th of this year will be published the big book of the Continental Op, one of those big fat books. It will contain every known piece that my ever grandfather ever wrote with the, with the Continental Op. It will have, and this has not been published since the 1920s, it will have the original black mask versions of the Red Harvest and the Dane Curse, which no one has seen unless you're an antiquarian collector or you have some kind of special source. So they're both of those novels in their original text, all the short stories in their original text, I mean carefully, as carefully as Rick and I could do it, um, we've uh, gone combed through and tried to fix it. We didn't use the Ellery Queen versions, which were corrupted. So we've gone back to the original source materials, and also there is one unfinished Continental Op that uh, we dug out of my grandfather's archives in Texas. It's in there, and with it are some chapter notes and some character notes that can give you a sense of how he approached his writing. So it'll be here in time for Christmas. This question is about the relationship between Raymond Chandler, a contemporary detective novelist, and Dashiell Hammett. In the letters book that we published in 2001, it's a big fat book, it's got about 500 letters in it. Um, he wrote a letter um, from Alaska to, I believe it was my Aunt Mary, in 1944-45. That was just after that article came out in the Atlantic that Chandler wrote, um, <coughs> Simple Art of Murder, 
um, that's since been republished many times, but um, he wrote to uh, Mary and he says, have you seen you know, this article in the Atlantic? Chandler said some pretty nice things about me. He was really pleased. Um, and here is a very odd thing, is in his papers that ended up back in my grandmother's garage, there was a typescript that he had apparently typed out an excerpt from that magazine article and saved it. And there's about six pages. My grandfather saved nothing, next to nothing. So the fact that he saved that is very significant. I think he was very flattered. Um, the two of them didn't really know each other. They met once, at, once I've heard rumors of other meetings, but um, once at a, at a big dinner for black mask meetings, uh, black mask writers. But uh, yeah, so I think he had some, they're very different. I mean, their styles are so different. They're almost the same age, but Chandler started writing just about the same time my grandfather was done writing. So quite different. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what happened to Julie Rivette's grandmother. So my grandmother was a nice little Irish nurse. She was you know, orphaned at six, went to live in, was sent to an orphanage, was raised by aunt. Um, not very, well, very difficult childhood. It, she became a nurse. Um, so after my grandfather left San Francisco, the family was living in San Francisco until 1929. That fall, he moved to New York. M my grandmother and the two little girls moved to the Los Angeles area where she knew some people and they lived in rented houses around Southern California. Um, she, uh, he supported her, not always entirely consistently, but he financially supported the family um, all that time. Sometimes he was drunk and forgot to send the checks and such, but, and then until the 50s when he had no income. She never remarried. There was at one point a mail order Mexican divorce that was not legal because Hellman got pregnant and they were going to get married and then she went and decided to have an abortion. Um, so um, they were legally married, so she lived quietly in a little house. She was just a regular, I mean, she was just grandma who came to babysit us. Um, not especially bright woman, you know, very hardworking. Um, so she lived until, uh, I think, into her 80s, um, you know, and then and died. Um, she eventually had a house in West Los Angeles that um, they bought during the war that my grandfather provided the money for. And my Aunt Mary lived in that same house, and her husband eventually lived in that house as well, which is where we found a lot of wonderful things in the garage after they all died. It was fun. That wraps up our Stillwater Public Library event with Julie Rivette. Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Lorna Landvik, recorded at Carver County Library, Chan Hassan, on Tuesday, April 25th. Minnesota's own Lorna Landvik is a comedian, actress, playwright, and prolific novelist. Her newest book, Once in a Blue Moon Lodge, is a long-awaited sequel to her beloved 1995 fiction debut, Patty Jane's House of Curls. It hit shelves in April. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, 
Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.